This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. Muck Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with Muck Delivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Welcome back to a complete history of Manchester United. I'm your host, Wayne Barton, author and producer of several Manchester United books and films, joined as always by the legendary football writer Paddy Barclay, but Barclay, author of this, the definitive biography of Sir Matt Busby, the man who made a football club. I just checked that made not built. Even though I've had it read a, a numerous times, it's always been it's always on my desk. But um Yeah. It, yeah. It, um, it could have been built, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. The only thing he probably didn't do was actually physically build Old Trafford, but um, all the rest. Yeah, of there's it, there's uh, there's good evidence that he never laid a brick. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you're watching the video, please give it a like and subscribe. Join in the conversation in the comment section. If you're listening back on the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe. Give us a review of the platform you're listening on. And while you're here, once you've finished with this this episode, please feel free to browse the library of all the. Pre- the Matt Busby era, and um, it's yeah. funny that I say that because this episode technically signals the last season of that era. Um, yeah. Was there any indication? We spoke of the um, conclusion to the previous season where Busby had been knighted. Obviously, mm-hmm. the culmination of that season being the winning of the European Cup yeah. and everything that came with it. Was there any indication at the start of this season? of what was to follow in, in January? There was a, a growing realisation that the game was changing. Uh, it was beautifully put uh, in retrospect a few years ago by John Aston Jr., the hero of the, uh, the European Cup win in the previous season, who, who put it this way. He said... We were the last man, he was talking about the 68 team, we were the last man to win win Wimbledon with a wooden racket. And uh, this was the the sense at the time that the game was changing, it was becoming more organised, that teams such as Leeds United, who man for man, because the United still had Lawbest, Charlton, Creran, were not as brilliant, were not as world-class as United, could still beat them more often than not through organisation, teamwork, togetherness, the things that really now you should take for granted in a a top football team. So this greater organisation, greater uh, concentration on coaching, uh, 
Matt sensed that his final team, uh, which was based almost on a star system, uh, was out of step and that something would have to be done. Anyway, we'll come to that in time. But this was, you know, Matt wasn't stupid. This change in the game, Liverpool under Shankly with the boot room, you know, was a much more collegiate coaching uh, atmosphere, West Ham, uh, the, the West Ham Coaching Academy, you know, yeah. the West Ham Academy with its coterie of coaches. Um, you know, this this was becoming the, the football of the future and, of course, is now the football of the present, you know, when you have uh, analysts, statisticians, video guys, you know, you, you have people for everything. But at this, the beginning of this process was, was the boot room culture, you might say. Uh, so that was definitely on Matt's mind as we went into the, the first season. And, and now, uh, sorry, Sir Matt uh, now. Um, and uh, anyway, we go into the season. Um, one good thing is that Dennis Law injured uh, for the European Cup final is fit and ready for the opening match, which was a fairly low-key victory uh, over Everton. Just one other thing I'd like to mention about the match. The forecourt at Old Trafford uh, contained the beginnings of rampant commercialism. In other words, a hut erected at the, with the permission of the board at a cost of £1,000 became the souvenir shop. And uh, uh, it's fair to say, say that today's mega store would never be mistaken for this little hut. But it was, it was there and uh, the fans were able to buy these um, souvenirs. Um, the average crowd had increased, by the way, um, in uh, the previous season to an average of around 58, you know, cracking on for 60,000. Um, we, we talked before about Manchester United having become different, bigger than, than their rivals. And there was evidence of this in the attendance for the Everton match, 61,000, I think it was, um, to see that victory. How many were able to cram into the souvenir shop before the game or after uh, is not recorded. Yeah. <laughs> um... But yeah, United win the opening game and then they go on this pattern of basically winning one, losing one. That's the pattern of the first sort of eight or nine games. They're not the team of yesteryear already. Early season, they play in the Derby, third game of the season, in fact, at Main Road. John Aston, man of the match in the European Cup final, breaks his leg. A very unfortunate moment for him, considering that man of the match performance, which really it'd been a figure of criticism for the fans yeah. who I think they, they felt a little bit of nepotism had come into play. And there's some players that, you know, we haven't mentioned and because of the nature of this um, show and we talk about the first team players, we don't always mention the reserve team players, but another one in the reserve team at the time was a midfielder by the name of Nick Murphy, who was mm. the son of Jimmy Murphy. I think they'd been one time aspirations for, Sandy Busby to be a footballer, but that had never yeah. happened. No, they'd been. I think he played old. for Sandy. Played for the reserves at was it Blackburn? I think somewhere like that. So he he, he could play a bit, but Matt recognised he he was never good enough uh, to to be invited to World Cup. And of course, Busby had already 
um, dealt with nepotism or accusations that when he transferred Don Gibson away. So yeah. very, they were very sort of not strict as such, but they were they were very careful about how how that was seen and perceived. John Aston was clearly good enough to play for the first team, and and there was no problem in that. But because of the fact that he was a relative of a member of the coaching staff, mm-hmm. some in fact. You know, I think he, he became a target for more than his fair share mm. of criticism, which is mm. surprising considering that his um, place in the first team had coincided with United playing so well. He yeah, yeah he, he, he um, suffered this broken leg and was replaced by Willie Morgan, um, a big signing from Burnley, um, Paddy. Um, yes, and- another six-figure sum. Uh, you know, Busby had to pay over a hundred thousand to get Dennis Law. Um, another, I think it was 117,000 he had to pay Burnley for Willie Morgan. Uh, Willie Morgan, long haired, um, slightly le- less peripatetic than, than George Best, less, um, probably more of a team player. Um, not as good uh, in George was a genius, um, as the title of your book about him, rightly. Uh, says, but the Willie was a very good player and knew a very, very good player and knew it. Um, in fact, I think you mentioned once that uh, Wayne that that he considered himself and George the best two footballers in in Britain, and certainly that wasn't a ludicrous statement for Willie. You, you might argue with it, but 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 Willie was certainly a very, very, very good player indeed. Um, much coveted for his performances by Burnley and still relatively young. Um, and it was, yes, a, a, just a, a note to add about, about John Aston. Very, very sad because not only had he been the outstanding player and the game changer really in the, to an extent, in the, um, in the Benfica final, um, he'd also played very well in the semi, the home leg of the semi-final against Real Madrid, you know, which sometimes get overlooked. So, yes, an extremely unfortunate uh, leg break for John Aston, and, uh, and and in comes Willie Morgan, seamlessly. Actually, um, he came into what was not, uh, which was a side on the on the decline, but uh, certainly his performances were nothing to do with that. Let's talk about that decline and a couple of other players, changes that Busby felt he had to make. There was one of those classic instances where he'd put the arm around Pat Creran and asked him, how, how do you think you're doing, son? Okay. Took him out for John Fitzpatrick for a few games. Yeah. Um, did the same on a more semi-permanent basis to Bill Folks, bringing in Steve James from the youth yeah. team. Yeah. Uh, and really, James, to be to be completely blunt, uh, we'll come on to it a little bit later on, under yeah. Wolf McGuinness hadn't really seemed like a very, very obvious choice to make it into the first team, but because of United's sort of options in that area, Dave Sadler was one, but I think yeah. United were Sadler obviously was an elegant ball player, and I think they wanted a little bit more of a presence at the back. James was seen as yeah. sort of the foil. <clears throat> they, they, Jimmy Murphy and Busby had a problem with Sadler, is that he wasn't enough of an assassin. Uh, he didn't like taking the man with the ball. In, in Fultzian style, uh, so um, yeah, that uh, they were hoping Steve James be a bit more physical, um, and of course Sadler could play midfield. He could play centre forward 
uh, although he wasn't needed, you know, with, with, with law. And of course, the uh, rise, uh, building on a great um, cup final, uh, European cup final performance of Brian Kidd. Yeah. Um, around this time, United, by virtue of winning the European Cup, qualified for it again, so they're in the competition this season. But the most significant thing in the early season was the tie against the Estudiantes. Um, Inter Intercontinental Cup, uh, which is the precursor to the World Club Cup, as it was for many, many years. So this is the competition devised by FIFA in their infinite wisdom to decree the best team in the world, which... When you think about it, theoretically, fits right into the Busby visionary playbook. This is the kind of thing that was made for a man like Matt Busby. But when the competition rolled around, it, there was a lot of reservation about it. Oh, absolutely. The previous season, as you, as, as you know, Celtic won the European Cup the year before United. And so the previous season, Celtic had played in this. And uh, they'd gone out to... Um, they played uh, racing club of Ar again of Argentina, um, and uh, basically it, the, the last thing it needed was to finish level and go to a third match. But that's what happened. Uh, racing club must have won the toss, so the third match was played in Montevideo, very close to Buenos Aires. Just a few hours by ferry, so uh, it was played. Uh, you know, over the, over there, and it was a terrible kick-in match. Celtic had four sent off, although one of them, Bertie Old, apparently stayed on the field. Um, and Racing Club had two sent off. And when they came back, Celtic manager Jock Steen said, "I will never take a team to Argentina again. That is it." But you're quite right. Busby had this internationalism about him. And he thought, no, no, if we just go out there with the right attitude, we'll be fine. So the first match against the Stidiantes was played in uh, in Argentina. And Busby went out and he suggested the day before the match that there should be a nice reception where the, where the players of, of the two clubs would get together and get to know each other before the match. So there'd be no, none of this mutual suspicion, this culture war, um, which held that all South American players were dirty and that all English players were just as physical, but a little more um, hypocritical about it, shall we say. So anyway, um, the reception was arranged at uh, some kind of sports club in, in Buenos Aires. And, United, neatly suited and booted, turned up and the Studiantes boycotted it. So it suggested that Busby's attempts at international diplomacy had not got off to the best possible start. Nor did United when the game took place because uh, a corner was taken by Juan Ramon Veron. And if you think that name is familiar, it's because his son, Juan Sebastian Veron, went on to play for United and Chelsea later. Um, but uh, Veron's corner was headed in, um, and that was it, I think. Uh, that was it. 1-0 was it, first leg? Yeah, um, and there was um, the infamous incident where Carlos Bilardo was um, touted yeah. as the most physical player 
in yeah. that team. In fact, so physical that the reputation was that he carried pins in his socks, which yeah. he later vehemently um, denied, um, although there was evidence to the contrary, I believe. Bilardo um, <laughs> had made a beeline for George Best, um, which is kind of funny because the pre-match um, focus had been on Nobby Styles and wow. his, his reputation. The assassin, Bilardo, yeah. Bilardo went on after Best. Best had sort of dribbled past him a couple of times in, in the way that Best did, fearless of the yeah. in reputation. Yeah. Um, at one point, Bilardo just said, Do you know what? I'm bad enough for this. Gives him a kick up the, the backside. Best turns around, picks the ball up, and offers it to Bilardo. If you want it yeah. that badly, you can have yeah. it. Yeah. Um, United lose 1 0, go back to Old Trafford, where they were hoping for a calmer um, second leg, but still still a feisty affair, isn't it? Uh, Veron scored. I think to make it uh, 2-1. Willie Morgan equalised, so it was on the night, but it did finish 2-1 at the end. But Bilardo so, again, so enraged the United players that Alex Stepney, uh, he, he, apparently Bilardo had been spitting as well as um, raking his studs. This time down, I think, Dennis Law, took a bit of a raking and um, so Stepney was enraged now you might think Alex Stepney a comparatively mild-mannered chap but he, he just felt so bad that he went down the tunnel he made sure he went down the tunnel just ahead of Bilardo and when and this was at the end of the game and when Bilardo came down Stepney boom, smashed him in the face with an, an elbow legged it thinking I've made my point uh, but unfortunately he made his point all too publicly because the TV cameras were mounted above the tunnel and they'd caught they'd caught Stepney I don't know whether they showed it on TV but the Daily Mail found out on the night that there was evidence of Stepney's misconduct and the following morning, he was summoned. It was supposed to be a day off, but he was summoned into Old Trafford at two o'clock and he went in. And uh, Busby confronted him with the Daily Mail's story that there had been a tunnel punch up and there was evidence of Stepney being the guilty party. And um, anyway, Busby fined him 50 quid, which is a fair old fine in those days, and uh, said, If you ever do anything like that again, I. I I asked him about this later, many years later, and said, if you'd done it, if the cameras hadn't been there, do you think you'd have got away with it? He said, yeah, definitely. The only thing that Matt was worried about was this reputation of the club. He, I don't think he felt that Bilardo had been hard done by, given the, his contribution to the match. But anyway, United were not world champions, and... Uh, that title went to Estudiantes, and so United battled on uh, domestically and in Europe. Yeah, um, it's worth saying as well, the, the Bilardo um, affair. Um, I um, 
was lucky enough when I was writing the, the book on George to come across like load of um, interviews and a name escapes the lady of um, who, who conducted the interview. She writes for the Guardian, Marcella, I think her name. Oh is. yes, yes, Marcella, yeah, yeah. She I did know. some great interviews with. Oh, she interviewed basically all of that Estudiantes team and sort of said I could have access to the interviews, you know, to use for the book. And one of the most striking things in there was the this insistence that the Argentinians had this brand of football that should be accepted as visionary in football. You know, like the Catanazio is a, a little bit more of a physical Catanazio and they yeah. couldn't understand why the, the entire world weren't appreciative of this standard. Yeah, it's fair yeah. to say that um, United's players most certainly were not. Um, yeah. There was this feeling, I mean, United continued inconsistently in the the months looking one two three four five league wins and um, before the end of november it's really poor starts the season the injuries that they've got to certain players the idea that busby himself knows that things have got to be shaken up the idea of a post european cup win hangover all these kind of things are inflicting united at the moment and it's fair to say yes they probably needed to be greater structure and discipline in the team um again a side effect of the defensive changes that had come into the sport but there was this growing feeling, and you mentioned the, the tennis racket analogy. Um, yeah. The, the Busby, who'd been in the game for 20-odd years as a manager, is a visionary, obviously decades ahead of his generation. But there was a feeling that he was now beginning to belong to yesterday. And still, when the um, there's a run of poor results again, a, a defeats over Christmas, which make you think United are in a bit of a rut, but the timing and the announcement of uh, what Matt Busby did in in the middle of January was uh, quite seismic, even even for all this, you know, to accept that there might be a change coming. Yeah. Um, when when he actually made that decision, Paddy. Um, so talk about the the obviously the event of him actually doing it and the build up to that. How, how, yes, how, well, he made an announcement and he made it the the way he worded it. The key phrase was it said Manchester United has become more than a club, but an institution. And that the job, brackets, of managing it could no longer be done by one man. So the, the structure that uh, he devised in, 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 in answer to what was happening in, you know, with young coaches at other clubs um, was that he didn't want to step down. He, he was only 60. Yeah. Just 60. Yeah. And he didn't want to step down, uh, but the structure that was devised was that he would remain general manager in an overseeing capacity under a new, well, you could have called him team manager, but the title was chief coach, which of, of course is was way ahead of its time and that now many managers are described as head coach or chief coach. Um, and the um, the chief coach uh, was identified as the 31-year-old uh, Wilf McGuinness, who, of course, as uh, listeners to all the episodes and students of United's history would, would know, was, a, was an extremely promising player from the Busby Babes era, whose career had been ended, I think, was he only 23, 24, it was by injury? and uh, who had then launched into coaching with the same fire and enthusiasm that had characterized his playing style uh, and in fact had been on the bench in 1966 had been a member of the 
coaching team assembled by Sir Alf Ramsey, uh, under which uh, England won the, won the World Cup. So this was, United had on their doorstep one of the brightest young coaches around. So it, the appointment has been criticised retrospectively, but at the time it must have seemed like perfect sense. Um, the, you know, the boot room mentality, a guy who knows the club and is yet a brilliant coach, um, but with the, the man under whom United became a great club, still there observing the, uh, the traditions of the club and making sure that they are continued. So it did seem make a lot of sense at the time. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the, the two sides of the coin, right? You've got um, the theory of everything going right and the theory yeah. of everything that could go wrong in United. Yes, whatever absolutely. reason, for 18, 24, 36 months, went on this parallel, uh, this, this sort of parallel path where yes. everything that could go wrong yeah. effectively did. Um, yes. and, and it started with this. Um, but it was made with the right intentions, and you're quite right. It, it Actually, when you look at it in retrospect and you look at the football um, field, so to speak, everything mm. happening across the sport, it seemed like the very, very logical, smart appointment for United to make. Mm. Um, right at the, at the right time and everything like that. Um, nobody could really qualm. Nobody was really questioning Busby about it. There was... Um, column in between the times, because obviously McGuinness was point, appointed in early April, so there's almost three months between Busby's announcement and, and this final appointment of McGuinness. Yeah. In that time, Busby wrote a column, I think it was in, published in the Express, or it was an interview given in the Express, where he basically listed uh, a number of qualities that he wanted from his yeah. United, um, what the ideal Man United manager would have, and I think McGuinness filled about half of them, you know, because obviously... Yes. Yeah, so is the, the, because because McGuinness wasn't that obvious from outside, uh, the three months it, it featured speculation about Don Reavy being lured yeah. from uh, Jockstein uh, from Celtic, um, you know, European champion, serial winner of the Scottish title, and um, and Dave Sexton who had succeeded Tommy Doherty at Chelsea and was very much, you know, in the vanguard. I mean, even today, people when people talk about the, if you were to do a history of English coaching, you know, Dave Sexton, Don Howe, people like that would be mentioned. So uh, there was naturally speculation about Dave Sexton. Um, and so, yeah, it was slightly left field when, uh, when Wilf, got the job because he was so young and uh, inexperienced. And looking back on it, I suppose the one thing uh, that that Matt didn't take into account, Matt and Louis Edwards, who would have been in on the deliberations, um, was human nature. Um, and that the players, if the team really was deteriorating and they bringing in gradual bringing in of youngsters again suggested that everyone at the club accepted that if 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 it did need um surgery that 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 one or two of the players who were left out would be extremely unhappy 
don't forget that Bobby Charlton was no spring chicken anymore, nor Dennis Law. Um, and that although George was, he was alone to himself. Uh, no pun intended. So uh, it it's very easy to be wise after the event. But uh, as I say, at the time, if you look at the trends in football, um, you know, it wasn't such a crazy appointment. No. Um, at the time of the appointment, United had just about stabilised the league form. They'd had a run of wins mm -hmm. just before um, McGuinness was appointed, which meant, I mean, it was still a massively disappointing league season. They would end up finishing in 11th. And by the time McGuinness was appointed, they'd already been knocked out of the FA Cup as well, on to Everton. However, yeah. um, they were still in the European Cup. Um, as they concluded the league campaign, incidentally, on the last day of the season, they won 3-2 against Leicester, which relegated them. They were coached by Frank O'Farrell, which um, is fairly significant considering what's to come in, in this series. Um, yeah. But McGuinness, nonetheless, had a European <laughs> semi-final to look forward to. Yes, that was against uh, Milan. Um, it was... Um, Oh, just an in, an incidentally, you mentioned Frank O'Farrell before I forget that it was a strange season because although they were relegated by Man United on the last day, they'd uh, reached the FA Cup final and been beaten by Manchester City. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, the, the good news and the bad news, really, for Leicester. Um, <clears throat> but yes, back to, back to Europe. The semi-final uh, is against uh, Milan with the first leg at San Siro. And Wilf McGuinness, newly installed as manager, decides to put his stamp on things by dropping Alex Stepney in goal. So he's not dropped for the Milan game, but he's dropped for the previous league game at Newcastle, against Newcastle. And Jimmy Rimmer, who we mentioned in the previous episode of making a real impression in the reserves, Young Jimmy Rimmer is brought in and kept in for San Siro, where United lose 2-0, which means a very, very tough second leg at Old Trafford. Um, the match remains goalless until 20 minutes from the end. Uh, Charlton scores a fantastic goal after a brilliant play with George Best. <clears throat> and that's 2-1, so it's a fantastic setup for the last 20 minutes and in the mud of the Milan goal uh, area by the way tenanted by uh, Fabio Cudicini again as a very um, familiar name because his son Carlo Cudicini went on to play for Chelsea among others but <clears throat> Fabio Cudicini who'd been hit by a missile from the Stretford end, as hooliganism sadly uh, continues, um, he manages to fall on the ball in the muddy goal mouth. The, presumably the goal line is already obliterated and Dennis Law screams that the ball is over the line, although neither he nor anybody else knows where the line is. Um, I've looked at it and done a sort of amateur VAR, and my guess is, and my strong suspicion is that it wasn't over the line. The referee 
unless he sees it over the line can't give it uh anyway no uh third game as it would have been it would have been a playoff somewhere uh against milan united are out of the european cup no european cup final uh for them and finally their hold is removed from the european cup uh milan go on <clears throat> to win the final 4-1 against ajax yeah um in the stands at old trafford two young players amateurs who just signed by the name of brian greenoff in the stretford end oh really Samuel mcelroy in in the um in the big stand um so yeah there's um a couple of links to united future there um, both really really taken by um the atmosphere um yeah. you know dreaming of a european night old trafford they couldn't believe anything like that and you know obviously they would have wonderful, wonderful night huge crowd um can i just you you can correct me if i'm wrong on this one way but was did this season also see the first few appearances of carlo sartori they were indeed. Um, Carlo um, came into the side as a. Um, well, he's, we'll talk about him more in the squad stats. More okay. More, okay. Uh, moments. But yeah, he played 17 games this season. Um, this little lad who um, you can see with a cheeky smile if you're watching the video. Yeah, um, yeah. A, a bloke with plenty of character, Carlo. Yeah. Um, and the Italian Paul Scholes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, so um, yeah, United finishing eleventh in the league, fi um, finished in the European Cup semi-finals and uh, FA Cup sixth round. So in the cups, close but not close enough, and in the league, a very very disappointing end to you know, what is officially the Busby era. But obviously, doesn't take into account the glory years of of um, the preceding episodes, which we've already spoken about. Um, the incredible teams that Busby had pioneered and and even this system which seemed a little bit rudderless at times this go out and enjoy yourself which was maverick of its time wasn't really the kind of thing that you would say is unsustainable in modern practice it just needed the right chemistry um, and the right kind of coaching to make it sustainable um, and as we'll come on it's still as much as can be something that's the closest thing to United's DNA, for want of a better phrase, is this energy which uh, Busby had sort of manifested into the team. And why it's clearly so hard to define is, you can remember way back in one of the early episodes when we are talking about the Busby Babes, can remember the news clipping that we read, there is no discernible pattern to the Busby style. Okay. Um, I guess it's one of those, like, a roller coaster. you just had to experience it and, and enjoy, know what you're watching, but not know how it's done. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, some managers with the golden touch may surely come across that in the future episodes. Um, come across the um, squad stats then for the final um, time under the Busby reign. Um, first of all, we'll go with the goalkeepers. I know I've got Steve James on the screen there. Alex Stepney was the first choice with fifty-one goal, uh, fifty-one games, thirty-eight in the league. But Rimmel, yeah, he came in. He also played eight games in all competitions, mm -hmm. um, four of those in the league. Regular fullbacks, Tony Dunn, 47 games in all competitions, 33 in the league. Francis Burns, more or less um, on the other side, nine, uh, 22 appearances in all competitions, 16 in the league, and a single goal for him. Shea Brennan made 17 appearances in all competitions and 13 in the league. 
Frank Koppel, um, we talked about in the previous episode, he makes 10 appearances, eight of those in the league. Bill Folks at centre-back makes 20 appearances, um, 10, uh, 13 of those in the league. And then we come on to Steve James, a midlander. Um, he joined as an apprentice in late 1965. He made his debut against Liverpool in October this season, aged just 17, uh, 18, sorry. He'd go on to play off of the league games this season, 21 and a single goal, 29 in all competitions, and played both games in the quarterfinal of the European Cup against Rapid Vienna. But as I said earlier, even though McGuinness had been in charge of his development in the reserve team, he seemed less convinced with him than Busby had when he put him in. Um, so interesting to see what will happen in that regard. Nobby Styles, as we mentioned, obviously gravitating towards that back line. 41 appearances in the league, a single goal, 56 in all competitions and two goals because he scored in the European Cup as well. John Fitzpatrick with um, 40 games in all competitions, 30 in the league, um, four goals in all competitions, three goals in the league. So really solid output for Fitzpatrick, who playing in defensive midfield, sometimes deputising a right back as well. Um, hard as nails, still plenty yeah, of... He, he got sent off during the season. He... he... Um, he, uh, yeah, fiery, very fiery, like his fellow Aberdonian Dennis Law. Yes, um, Pat Crerand with 49 appearances and two goals in all competitions, 35 and one in the league. Brings us on to the midfielders, um, Bobby Charlton, the other midfielder, 48 appearances and seven goals in all competitions, 32 and five. So, not a prolific season for Bobby. Um, but still an important contribution, as always. Yeah. Alan Gowling, more or less playing in midfield this time, but only makes two league appearances. Willie Morgan on the right-hand side, um, 40 appearances in all competitions and nine goals um, to kick off his United career, 16-29 in the league. Morgan, a man who arrived with no concerns about his ability or reputation, takes the number seven shirt, no, normally worn by George Best, and like you said earlier, he mentioned that himself and Best were the best two players in the country, which, yeah, at the time, it, it was a boast. Of course it was, but um, one that he was justified to make. Um, like I said, he's very different in terms of um, his style to George Best. A little bit like um, Brian Kidd and David Hurd. We'll talk about them in a moment. How they were different, um, but Morgan wasn't going to score you the goals that Best would but he would deliver goals. Uh, he liked to get to the line, a proper winger. He liked to trick yeah. to um, set up goals. Immediately became a fan favourite at Old Trafford. They absolutely yeah. loved him um, with Best on the other side. Best 19 league goals, leading goal scorer um, in, in the league for United. 41 appearances, 55 games, 22 goals in all competitions. John Aston did recover to make some appearances at the end of the season. He played 13 games in the league altogether and scored two goals. Um, Jimmy Ryan deputised as a winger, seven appearances in all competitions and a single goal. In And that goal was in the league in six games. Dennis Law, top goal scorer in all competitions, mainly because of his exploits in the European Cup. 30 goals in 45 games, 14 in 30 in the league. Brings us to Brian Kidd. I didn't have him on last time as on the pen picks, but he's here now, um, long overdue, of course. Collyhurst, Bone, Brian Kidd, whose debut had come in the previous season. A versatile forward, very good on the ball and a very decent eye for goal. Very reliable squad player. Um, effectively, 
Hurd's replacement. And as I was saying earlier, in terms of comparison, it might be fair to say he wasn't as prolific as Hurd. I mean, he scores four goals in 42 games this season, just one in 29 in the league. But he was arguably an all-round better footballer, uh, very intelligent on the ball, very economic in his use of the ball. Paddy, I've used that word economic. economic. Yeah. And in fact, it is that sort of economy that is very often undervalued um, in football in general, but yeah. in the case with Brian Kidd, for sure. Yeah, the, 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 you know, keeping the ball is an important uh, part of football. And uh, that was that was true of Kidd. You're quite right. He, he took care of the ball. Um, took care of the opposition at times. Tough. <laughs> uh, tough player. Um, but uh, yes, as you say, intelligent uh, and econo- economical in his, in his in, 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 you know, he didn't give the ball away. Yeah. Um, yeah, very, very, very good player. By now a regular, not, not, not scoring that many goals, but uh, his overall statistic, which you've put up there, 260 six appearances, 70 goals. Um, it's, you know, not far off three goals, one every three games, which is which is pretty good for a, a creative striker, if you if you like. Yeah. Um, someone who had even less fortune than Kidd in front of goal this season, David Sadler, although he would move around the side um, into the back line occasionally, as we've already discussed. He made 37 appearances without a single goal, 29 appearances in the league. That brings us on to Carlo Sartori, um, born in Italy, raised in Collyhurst, as Manchester as they yeah. come, really. Um, but well, he is often quoted, Paddy, as the first foreign, i.e. non-UK player to play for United. Yeah. Well, it's it's a, it's an argument. As you say, born um, in northern Italy, the fact where he was just a little kid when his dad came over to north, you know, north, North of Piccadilly, Manchester, you know, um, the Ancoats was still known, uh, well, had been known as Little Italy uh, because it was where Italian people, Louis Rocca, um, another great figure from United's history, you know, there was a product of Little Italy. Um, and his dad came over and decided to make a living of knife sharpening. Uh, so he had a little knife sharpening business up in Ancoats and uh, they lived in <clears throat> nearby Collyhurst and and yes Carlo if you'd met him you would never dream that he'd uh, ever been outside Collyhurst he was a typical Collyhurst lad United daft and his hero was who was Dennis his hero? Law. Dennis Law so you know um, yeah, so you call him a foreign player, but you could also call him a typical Manc. <laughs> it's yeah. it's, uh, it's up, up to you. Yeah, especially, I mean, we, we've going, been going through this series and even, you know, we're talking about Sartori and he technically takes this honour in some quarters, but we have also put the case that Glasgow-born Ed McIlvenny, who played for the US yeah. in 1950 yeah. before signing for United, could technically qualify as that. But, you know, we will come to who might else be registered as that um, as that play with that honour in, in yeah. a few episodes. Um, Sartori, a diminutive 5'8", 5'9", 5'7", around that yeah. eye. Um, diminutive, distinctive by that bright red hair. Very hard worker. 
Um, yeah. Very promising talent as well. He'd been offered terms at most yeah. Northwest clubs, um, but he was the promise of playing at the same club as his, his hero, Dennis Law, that tipped the balance. If you're wondering who actually scouted him and tipped him at United, Joe Armstrong, still yeah. hard at work. Um, I've got the quote from Sartori. Yeah. On my last day at school, a teacher informed me that Mr. Joe Armstrong from Manchester United is coming to your house to see you. He had a cup of tea with my mum, and we then took the bus back to the ground where I was introduced to some of the players, including Dennis. And that was it. Yeah. A love affair was born. One goal in 17 appearances for Carlo this season. That goal actually came in the European Cup. Um, he didn't score in 13 league appearances um, this season. But, um, yeah, very hard worker. Um, in the mould of law, yeah. if not as prolific as him. Um, yeah. Just one note on foreign players in the UK. Um, yeah. we, we mentioned the scarcity of them at United, but that was obviously the case through football as well. Yeah. I think probably the only foreign player in English football that we mentioned in this entire episode, uh, this entire yeah. run series is Bert Troutman. Yeah. Uh, in 1931, the Football Association decided to take a hard stance on foreign footballers. And they introduced a rule that said a player would have to be resident in the UK before two years, for two years before they were allowed to play. Um, and that requirement lasted for 47 years. Yeah. There are a couple of Danish players who, who did make it into the top division in the late 40s. They were Carl Arger Hansen for Huddersfield and Vigo Jensen. Of Hulsey, they were both members of the Danish national team um, in the Olympics of 1948. Now, the FA wanted to continue this. Obviously, we've talked about their archaic attitudes before, and they wanted to really impose this. It would have been indefinite as far as they were concerned. Mm -hmm. the, the, there was a meeting in the European community of the European community in Brussels in, in 1978, so some way off, um, but relevant because we're talking about it now. Um, during that meeting, relevant members of what was effectively the EU, um, they voted to declare that a player's nationality should not be an issue when deciding whether or not he is allowed to play football in any given uh, country, which meant in that summer the Football League met for its AGM and decided to lift the de facto ban on non-English players. Um, there was a flood immediately came in, Spurs being pioneers, bringing in a lot of Argentine players and Anyone who peruses the newspapers at that time, and Paddy, I'm sure that you were working on the columns yeah. at that time, you remember fondly that there was a deluge of Argentinian names linked to every English club. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was totally, totally transformed. But uh, yes, it, it, it seemed a, a long way off back then in, in, in 1969 because you, you're quite right, there weren't many foreign players. There were there had before been quite a few South Africans, including um, Bill Perry, uh, uh, another hero of the, uh, the who scored the winner in the Stanley Matthews final of '53. But South Africans were considered English in or British in the yeah. sense that they were colonials, so it was it was different rules there. There were other South Africans, John Huey, and various others played. But um, yes, I'm very glad that you, in the the context of Carlos Sartori that you mentioned that Joe Armstrong was still uh, very much at the heart in charge of United scouting operation and, and, and the young players you've also mentioned that he came in. In fact, in the summer of 69, uh, when 
uh, it was announced that uh, Armstrong and Aldrin had become the first men on the moon. A lot of people at Old Trafford assumed that was Joe Armstrong <laughs> looking for players for United up on in uh, in another planet. Um, but in fact, it, it was, of course, uh, a different uh, Armstrong, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were the first two men on the moon, just to make that absolutely clear. So it was a, a momentous time, both at Old Trafford and for the human race. If, if we had the means, for sure, Joe Armstrong would have been up there scouring, oh, yeah. scouring the dust. Offering them offering them a washing machine, maybe. No, no, that was always <laughs> Allegedly. 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 <laughs> uh, let's go on to the tactics for this season. Uh, you, can mention, you can see there are a few changes, Steve James in particular in there, Shea Brennan playing at, at right back. I mean, Brennan, Burns, it's really a flip of a coin there. Uh, Burns probably should deserve to be in that side because he played marginally more times. Um, Bill Folks has mentioned marginally, marginally less than James and Styles. So, um, yeah, rendered second choice there. Kreren Charlton in the middle. And that front line, which reads like a law firm, Morgan, Kidd and Law. Best. Um, yeah, that's how it looks there. I mean, again, yes, you've got Sadler. He could play in, in the positions. Yeah. Um, and Fitzpatrick, it seems harsh to not have them in when they both played well over 30 games. Yeah. Um, it's kind of that's just the composition of how a regular United team looks that season. That, yeah, that, that would be a, a typical team. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, also, uh, Francis Burns would, would often be in instead of Brennan. So, yeah, yeah it, 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 there, were, uh, there were a lot of team changes, and probably that contributed to the uh, indifferent form that saw United uh, end in 11th place, right in the, the definitive mid table position. Yeah, absolutely. Um, United's colours this season, red, white and red as always. All white away strip, blue shirt, white socks, uh, white shorts and white, uh, blue socks for the third kit. Um, the United review remained the same with the handshake on the front. Average attendance down to 53,271. The top goal scorers, and um, Dennis Law in all competitions, George Best in the league. The key results, it's difficult to know which ones to pick out. I mean, the, the Estudiantes one is very much a landmark result. Mm -hmm. um, Milan is an obvious one going 2-0 down in San Siro because 2-0 uh, is basically losing the tie at that moment in time. Um, but losing 4-0 at home to Chelsea very early in the season was um, was one of alarm bells ringing for Busby, I think, which made him really realise, first of all, that he would have to make changes and then probably that gradually... Um, evolved into this bigger feeling of well, if someone's going to make the changes, it, maybe it's time for the baton to be passed on. I'm not ready for another transition. It's time for fresh blood to come in, um, mm -hmm. which effectively is what we should in the new generation. Um, oh, not very good when it comes to reading out the winners of the trophies elsewhere. Um, the champions are Leeds United. And with this new style pioneered by Don Revy, this, this and, and 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 featuring um, the um, United uh, educated, uh, turbulently educated John Giles, absolutely fundamental to that Leeds United team, uh, as he recalled uh, many years later. You know, man for man, we weren't as good as United, but we could usually beat them, and. Yeah. Uh, Yes, they were the champions. 
Um, the, they did not, however, it, 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 almost as if to reflect the fact that they were a unit. Um, the, they didn't get the Footballer of the Year award. That went to, it was shared between two senior citizens of the English game, Tony Book of Manchester City, who won the cup beating Leicester, um, at the FA Cup, and Dave Mackay, even more senior, who was the captain of the second division champions, Derby County, managed by Brian Clough and Peter Taylor. What an adornment they would uh, prove to the top flight. Um, but uh, who won the League Cup, Wayne? Were the um, Swindon Town. I had in my notes a different team, but it was Swindon Town who won the League Cup. United's right. still not entering it. Um, well, still not. Every time they've entered it, they've been roundly embarrassed. So you can see why they don't want to, to end up with <laughs> yes. the humiliations that they keep True. facing. Um, yeah. To be fair, United in embarrassments in the League Cup is going to be a common theme throughout their entire history, to be fair. Um, but yeah, that's, that's it. Swindon Town winning it at unfancied. Swindon Town um, winning the League Cup, and, and to be fair, that's what the League Cup was good for. It's always been mm. good for that unfancied team coming through and, mm. and winning that competition um, because good. every team deserves their moment in the sun. And United's about to have a period in the shadow, which unfortunately, <laughs> having lived through a few years of that in a modern era um, and having basked in in the glory of the Busby times, um, sadly, it's time to come to an era era that. Paddy and I have covered also well in in recent times um, the post Busby era, which is going to begin with the Wilf McGuinness episode um, coming soon. Um, so yeah, if you're watching this video, please give us a like and subscribe. Join in the conversation in the comment section. If you're listening to the audio podcast as well, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on. We will be back next time to cover the start of the post Busby era. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the Talk Sport Fan Network. Talk Sport. Powered by fans.